Hello everybody, welcome to St Paul's Cathedral, welcome to St Paul's Forum, very nice to see you all here. Um, Dave Tomlinson's one of my heroes and it's uh, very good indeed that uh, he's here today. Um, I always think one of the great uh, problems with religion is that it gets you to talk about God in a funny voice. And I actually mean that, not just in that sort of Anglican sing-songy way, but also in some sort of deeper sense in which you sort of talk about God in a different way when you're in church than when you're in the pub or when you're at home and so forth. And I think the thing that Dave is so absolutely brilliant at is that he does not talk about God in a funny voice and manages to integrate uh, the God who we explore in the pub and in church and at home in a way that is coherent and convincing. Um, the post-evangelical came out in 1995, I just discovered, and that makes me feel terribly old because it feels, still feels to me a terribly fresh uh, and alive book that manages to talk, again, about God without using those awful categories, conservative and liberal, neither of which are really appropriate. So uh, I'm delighted to see that Dave's... Um, got stuck in again with re-enchanting Christianity, and it's very good indeed to welcome you here to St Paul's today. Dave. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> well, thank you, Giles. It's, uh, I, can, I can put that on my CV now, Giles. <laughs> I'm Giles Fraser's hero. Well, it's, it's lovely to be here with you today, and thank you for, for giving your time to come and uh, listen to me say a few words and, uh, and to interact with me a bit later, um, I hope. Uh, I am the vicar of a church which is quite vociferous and has a number of, of hecklers in it, so I'm quite, I'm quite accustomed to sort of uh, robust interaction with people, so uh, don't be afraid to disagree with me. So I'm talking about doubt here, sacred doubt. Um, I think that doubt is an important element of human life and experience and people who have no doubt, and I know a lot of them, and I've probably been one, uh, I find very scary. Um, I think actually when they've got power as well, they're very dangerous. So it's, uh, it's good to be able to talk about this subject. The ancient uh, Hopi people of North America have got a fascinating rite of passage for their children as they move into young adulthood. Because throughout their life, these children have been familiar with the Kachinas, the tribe's masked holy men who bless the corn harvest and bring toys and gifts to the children, a bit like Santa Claus. But one night, as the children are brought to the sacred circle, something different happens. On this occasion, instead of giving them gifts, the Kachinas simply remove their masks, revealing the fact that uh, these figures whom the children thought of as sort of gods, really, are actually their family and neighbours, people who they see every day. It's a moment of sacred disenchantment, if you like, when childish naivete gives way to grown-up reality. Now, sadly, the church doesn't have, I don't think St Paul's has, uh, or anywhere else, an equivalent to the Hopi ritual. Uh, there's no service of disenchantment in common worship that I have yet found. That, that would help us to figure out what are the childish things about Christianity that we should leave behind and what are the things that we really need to hold on to. For churchgoers, the process is uh, a lot more messy and fraught, and yet it's absolutely essential. Indeed, paradoxically, I think experiencing disenchantment 
with the Christian faith is actually fundamental to growing as a Christian. It's the reality check that brings into question all that we've simply taken for granted. Uh, The acid bath that purges our naive assumptions, false religious pretensions and unthinking Uh, conformity. But what lies beyond the disenchantment? That's really the question. What do we do when the mask is removed and we realize that things can't be the way that they were or the way that we thought they were? One thing is very clear. Once the mask has gone, it can never be put back into place again. The original innocence is gone, never to be restored. Now, does that mean that we're damned to eternal cynicism, an everlasting cycle of doubt and suspicion? Or is there, is there a second innocence, a means of re-enchantment? Can we still continue journeying confidently with the Christian faith whilst also entertaining serious doubts and questions? Well, when the young Hopi Indian sees for the first time the face behind the mask, he or she must face, face a decision, either to treat the world of religion as a charade, a sick joke, or to move forward to a more adult reality in the rituals and symbols of their people, a reality that points to a deeper mystery. In 1 Corinthians 13, St. Paul points to a deeper mystery within Christianity, which we can't fully encounter in this life. What we experience now, he says, is like a poor reflection in a mirror, or an enigmatic riddle is how the uh, New Jerusalem Bible puts it. To pursue this deeper mystery through the uh, riddles and symbols of the Christian faith, knowing that they themselves are not that mystery, is to follow the path toward a second innocence, a point of re-enchantment. And yet it's painfully clear that lots of people don't make it through to that second innocence. We're surrounded by people who used to believe, who used to go to church but no longer do. Often it's because They're locked into interpretations of Christianity that they can no longer believe in or accept. And this is very sad because actually in truth, Christian tradition is so wonderfully rich and diverse. There are always other interpretations, other ways of looking at issues, other spiritual paths to explore. If only we know how to find them. The assumption is often made that those who who struggle with doubts and questions, those who drift away from the church or even from mainstream Christianity are in some way spiritually substandard, that they lack the grit or the piety or whatever it is to pursue the Christian faith. And yet the reality is quite often the reverse. It's often the doubters, the people who've outgrown the hand-me-downs of religious certainty uh, and who continue to ask questions who are actually on a genuine faith journey. The rest are often parked up in some uh, sort of lay-by on the road called the church. When I was a child, St Paul says, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. We're not meant to remain the same, to stick with the same outlook on life or to hang on to the same old beliefs and attitudes, come what may. We're meant to grow as people and as that growth Uh, occurs, all kinds of changes will come about in the way that we go about interpreting and applying our Christian faith. This can be exciting and stimulating. It can also be unnerving, and especially to uh, people around us at times who fear that our whole house of faith is collapsing uh, on the floor. 
And that's very often actually when fear is used as a means of manipulation. You know, if you go down this road, this is where you'll go. It's the slippery slope, la 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 la. And these sort of threats are used to sort of hem us in and to get us to conform, to step back into line. Now, for more than 20 years now, uh, the phenomenon of the changing stages of faith have been recognised and studied in various ways. James Fowler is the, uh, the famous man, the most influential theorist in this field, and he's mapped out seven distinct stages of faith that can occur in a person's faith development. Fowler suggests that as this happens, significant changes are likely to occur in a number of things, in the way that people think, in their judgments, in the way and extent to which they draw boundaries around their faith community, the way that they relate to external authorities and their truth claims, the way that they form their worldview, the way that they understand and respond to religious symbols and so on and so forth. Clearly, the content and faith, uh, uh, the content and form of a person's faith is going to change as they progress through these changes of outlook, even perhaps to the point of seeming their faith, that is, to disappear at times. And yet each stage of faith is in its own right fully a part of the Christian experience, of Christian journey. Of Christian journey. The psychotherapist uh, M. Scott Peck offers a simplified version of Fowler's stages of faith. And he makes the fascinating observation that if people who were religious came to him in pain and trouble, and if they became engaged in the therapeutic process, they frequently left therapy as skeptics uh, or agnostics or even atheists. On the other hand, if atheists, agnostics or skeptics came into in similar circumstances to go through the therapeutic process, he says they frequently left the process as religious people, as people of faith. And it puzzled him. So he says, you know, same therapy, same therapist, successful but utterly different outcomes from a religious point of view. It didn't compute, he says, until he realised that we're not all in the same place spiritually. Spiritual growth can mean quite different things to different people at different stages in their life and on their journey. There is a stage, perhaps many stages in life, when disenchantment, a process of, of deconstructing one's faith, is an essential element in spiritual growth. As painful and difficult as it may be, and unnerving as I say at the time, far from being the end of faith, I think this just sig simply signals one's need of a deeper and more real encounter with God born out of personal experience instead of unthinking conformity. Sadly, however, this is not the way the process is viewed in lots of churches, where spiritual growth and maturity are equated and uh, ever more, with ever more fervent affirmations of the church's teachings rather than with an honest quest for truth and spiritual reality. And this begs the question, are churches supposed to be gatherings of like-minded believers? who all share the same view on the Holy Trinity, salvation, the priesthood, sexuality, the infallibility of scripture, and uh, so on and so forth, the meaning of the ten-horned beast in Revelation, or whatever. Or should they, as I believe, be communities of openness and diversity, where skeptics, doubters, and dissenters are as welcome as those who appear perfectly settled within the tenets of their faith. Just an hour or two ago in my church in Holloway, I invited people to the table of Christ, uh, in which I said, as I always do, that uh, this is the table of Christ where all are welcome and no one is turned away. And I offer bread and wine to everyone without exception if they wish to receive. And I 
very often in that context say wherever you are on your journey whether you feel you're brimming full of faith or whether you're racked with doubts whether you're just confused uh, it doesn't matter because Christ welcomes all at the table for many of us the Christian faith is fraught with complex questions to which there can't be one single straightforward explanation questions about the very nature of the divine about the person of jesus about the bible the church social ethics and so on for sure one doesn't need a phd to be a christian but when people awake and realize that faith is not as simple as they were led to believe they frequently end up walking away disillusioned over the past decade or so i have personally had frequent visits from students studying theology, many of whom have backgrounds in conservative churches. Each of their stories has got a similar ring. Nothing had prepared them for the onslaught their faith received in their first term at college or university. Like the Hopi, who are suddenly exposed to what lies behind the mask, they realize that nothing can ever be the same again. And that's scary. One young man I talked to uh, recently says that there's no way that he can return to his home church, let alone pursue the ministry he once thought that he would discover. He's leaving college with his degree, his degree, degree in fact he has done now, uh, but will pursue a very different path in life, which probably won't include going to church for him. Another young woman I know was told that her home group were praying against the spirit of liberalism in her college which happened to be a conservative evangelical college, by the way. Uh, the gap between critical approaches to Christianity and the simplistic spirituality promoted in lots of churches is something that lies at the heart of so much disillusionment with Christianity today. There's a disconnect. Many long for an expression of the Christian faith that reconciles heart and head, that offers a positive, engaging spirituality, which is also committed to grappling honestly with difficult and painful questions and which longs to make the world a better place. I believe there are many people like this, but sadly, many of the people I know like that don't go to church because that's not where they're going to find, they think, what they're looking for. So is re-enchantment with Christianity possible? Having deconstructed our simplistic notions of faith, having committed ourselves to the critical path and seen... Uh, behind the mask, can we, can we discover a second innocence? Is this possible? Well, I believe so. However, this re-enchantment is not and cannot be a return to credulity, a recapturing of some previous enchantment with Christianity. Instead, it's the realization that um, <coughs> excuse me, it's the realization that uh, our faith is going to have to be completely rebuilt and reconstructed in a different way and it's about connecting with that deeper mystery which still awaits us uh, still awaits to be explored and encountered after wading through the mire of religious nonsense nonsense encountered in many churches this realization can come uh, as both a surprise and as a great relief um, a letter i received in response to the post evangelical and i can't tell you how many bags and bags of mail i got before emails started happening um, and this particular letter rather colourfully illustrates the point. He writes this. He said, a year ago I was in a state of rage. He is actually a university uh, professor, this man. He said, a year ago I was in a state of rage bordering on church burning. I felt like Winston having escaped from Big Brother or, having, or the savage in Brave New World and wanted revenge for all those mind-screwing sermons. 
miserable worm guilt feelings and the ludicrous newspeak that had been my life for 20 years. There was no church I could go into without, without having a severe reaction and either walking out or putting my fingers in my ears and going, la, 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 which my wife found embarrassing and looked like demonization to those who are so wise about these things. A copy of your book and a visit to Greenbelt were the first indications that I was not entirely alone. I am now completely free from that stifling kind of religion that slowly strangles the life out of you and from the susceptibility to completely flee reality. My spirituality is now my own, not an undigested mixture interjected from a thousand grim sermons and silly books. I can get in touch with the strength of it deep inside. I can read the words of Jesus, but their meaning has now changed like rain into snowflakes. My mind is now open and not tight shut and I feel an almost primitive sense of freedom and energy. I think he should write a book, actually, on the subject. Reenchantment involves discovering expressions of faith and spirituality that one can own for oneself. This doesn't mean reinventing Christianity, but finding ways to inhabit it that feel authentic and credible. Without this, the faith journey will be frustrating and possibly short-lived. During the 1990s, Pat and I led a group called Holy Joes, which if you read the post-evangelical you'll, you'll know about, whose entire raison d'etre was to cater for people uh, who were on this sort of journey. For 10 years in a pub in South London, we listened over many pints of beer to unremitting stories of anger, hurt, disappointment and confusion, mopping up plenty of tears as well into the bargain. Holy Joe's was for many a last resort, a final throw of the dice before walking away from the church and possibly from Christianity too. Most of those who came were in their 20s or early 30s, a few like me were just a little bit older than that. Uh, some were pushy and hard to shut up, others were content to sit and listen, some wanted uh, heady discussion, others needed somewhere to vent their spleen. But what Holy Joe's offered, which sadly is so rare in churches these days, um, was uh, a no-holds-barred opportunity to discuss, debate and argue uh, about whatever it was that the church and church and Christianity that got their goat. And uh, no one passed judgment on what was heard or seen. There was no right answer imposed at the end of the evening. And uh, I think that I came across this idea, if I can just finish with this, this uh, little explanation, I came across this idea really of a second uh, innocence in the writings of the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, uh, who died in 2005, I think. Uh, he's, he's well known for his work in the field of hermeneutics, the theory of interpretation. He was a man of faith who grew up in a devout Protestant background in Catholic France. And whilst most of his work was not specifically religious, he made a major contribution to an understanding of how to interpret the texts and symbols of Christianity. Uh, he's described by one person as a hermeneutical equivalent to John the Baptist, which meant that his approach prepares the way for new and liberating ways to interpret the texts and symbols of Christianity. And one of Ricoeur's most famous creations is the hermeneutical arc, a three-step methodology to plot a, a kind of dialectic, dialectical movement, really, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, in the interpretation of a text. And according to this, uh, reading starts with a naive acceptance of the text and its literal sense, and that's followed by a moment of disenchantment 
which, uh, when critical distance appears between the reader and the text. And, uh, and then, finally, he says in this arc, it suggests the possibility of a second naivete, a moment of reconnection with the text, which in no way bypasses criticism, but rather moves through it to attain a new understanding, which he called a post-critical moment. And it seemed to me when I sort of came across Ricoeur's writings that this really was the story of so many of our spiritual journeys, that uh, we began our Christian life with wide-eyed faith, uh, just taking it all in as it was dished out to us. Um, and some people seem to go an incredibly long time happy with that. Some people never seem to hit a disenchantment. I certainly did, and I know many, many do, where suddenly it begins to unravel, it begins to come to pieces, and sadly, as I say, for a lot of people, that is the end of the Christian journey. Um, but Ricoeur offered the hope that there is this second naivete, a second innocence, a place of re-enchantment. And he said that it's by interpreting that we can believe again. And uh, I particularly love the quotable quote of his where he says, beyond the desert of criticism, we wish to be called again. And I suppose it's to people with that longing that I speak and I write, really, for those who want to be called again, who are saying there must be something more than this, there must be something beyond this. And uh, so this book was, I suppose, if the, if the post-evangelical was a moment of disenchantment, this was is a sort of moment of re-enchantment, really. Not that it's giving... Uh, a, a kind of systematic, re-enchanted view of Christianity, but I think it's sort of mapping out some of the ways in which I've wrestled with the hard questions and issues uh, in the Christian faith in my journey to, uh, to a re-enchantment. I should say, actually, finally, that it's, I don't think that this is a straightforward, linear kind of pattern, you know. I've reached my re-enchantment, you know. I'm now a re-enchanted Christian. Um, I think it is as... Uh, Ricoeur suggests an arc. It is in fact a circle. It's a matrix that we constantly re-enter. So my, my re-enchantment itself gets deconstructed. And uh, it's, so it's a constant sort of journey of, uh, of, of going through this kind of dialectic, if you like. Um, always open to the fact that what I presently feel sure about may well need to be rethought and questioned and then the matrix, as I say, is re-entered again. So there you go. That's, uh, that'll do to start with, I think. Mm -hmm.